You are listening to the Mystical City of God in a Year podcast. I'm Father Edward Looney, and throughout the year I'm reading and reflecting on the four-volume, over 2,500-page work by the Venerable Maria of Agreda. If you would like to discuss today's readings, you can do so on Facebook at the Mystical City of God in a Year podcast group page, where you can share your own thoughts and insights about today's readings with others who are listening and following along. Let us now thank God for the life of Venerable Maria of Agreda. Almighty God, you will that all people know the saving power of Jesus' name. Throughout time, you have sent missionaries to your people who proclaim the good news. We thank you for sending Sor Maria to the Humano people and planting the seeds of the gospel in their heart and in our land. She taught them the good news and prepared them for baptism. We look to her example in holy life and wish to be taught by her today. Sor Maria, teach us how to pray and meditate. Teach us how to imitate the virtues of Our Lady. Teach us the mysteries of our faith. Almighty God, stir a flame in our hearts the same missionary fervor of Sor Maria, so we may be as emboldened as she was to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Today is day number 279, and we are reading from Volume 4, Book 7, Chapter 2. Paragraphs 10 to 17. Chapter 2. St. John the Evangelist, in chapter 21 of the Apocalypse, gives a literal description of his vision of the Most Holy Mary, Our Lady, as she descended from heaven. 10. It befitted the exalted dignity of St. John as being appointed the Son of Most Holy Mary by Jesus on the cross, that he should be the secretary of the ineffable sacraments and mysteries of the Great Queen which were kept concealed from other persons. For this reason, many of her mysteries were revealed to him before her excursion into heaven, and he was made an eyewitness of the hidden mysteries on the day of the ascension, when the sacred eagle saw the divine Son, Christ, Isaiah thirty twenty six, ascend in sevenfold light, as Isaiah said, and with it, the moon, Mary, shining as the sun, on account of her likeness to Christ. The most fortunate evangelist saw her ascend and seated at the right hand of her son. He saw her also descend, as I have said, with renewed astonishment, because he recognized the change and renovation at her return to the earth, after having experienced the influences of the divine glory and godlike attributes. As is said in the second part, our Savior Jesus had already promised the apostles that before going to heaven he would arrange for the stay of his most blessed mother for the consolation and direction of his holy church. But the Apostle St. John, during his first joy and wonder at seeing the great Queen seated at the right hand of Christ our Savior, forgot this promise, and absorbed in the consideration of this unthought of event, he began to fear or get anxious, lest the Heavenly Mother should remain in the glory which she enjoyed. Agitated by this uncertainty, St. John, amid the jubilee of his soul, felt also the afflicting pangs of love as the loss, and these lasted until he again remembered the promises of his Master and Savior and saw his Most Holy Mother descending to the earth. 11. The mysteries of this vision remained impressed upon the memory of St. John, so that neither these nor all the others revealed to him by the Queen of Angels ever escaped his mind. And the sacred evangelist sought to spread the knowledge of them in the Holy Church. 
But the humanity of the most prudent Mary Our Lady deterred him as long as she lived, and persuaded him to keep them hidden within his bosom until the Most High should command otherwise. For it was not opportune to manifest them to the world beforehand. The Apostle obeyed the wishes of the Heavenly Mother. Before his death, at the time when God commissioned him to enrich the church with the hidden treasures of these sacraments, he was instructed by the Holy Ghost to reveal them in deeply metaphorical and enigmatic language, which, as the church itself confesses, is difficult to understand. It was proper that they should not be open to all, but shut up as the pearl is in nacre or in its shell, or as the gold is hidden in the minerals of the earth. The Holy Church gradually, more enlightened and studying them diligently, could draw upon these treasures as necessity required, and in the meanwhile preserve them and deposit within the obscurity which the holy doctors have met with and acknowledge in the holy scriptures, and especially in the Apocalypse. 12. In the course of this history, I have already spoken of the providence of the Most High in concealing the greatness of His Most Holy Mother in the primitive church. And I will offer no excuse for pointing it out anew because of the admiration it will cause in those who now come to know of it. In order to moderate our doubts, if any should be entertained, we need only consider what the various saints and doctors have said anent the providential concealment of the body and the burial of Moses. Deuteronomy 34.6 This was ordained, they say, in order that the people of the Jews, so given to idolatry, might not be led astray into giving adoration to the body of the prophet, whom they esteem so highly, or that they might not begin to venerate him by some superstitious and vain cult. For the same reason, they say that Moses, writing of the creation of the world and of all creatures, although the angels were the most noble of all, did not expressly mention their creation, but only indicated it by the words, God created light. Because these words can be understood as well of the material light of this visible world, as also by a hidden metaphor of these substantial and spiritual lights, the holy angels of whom a more open mention was, at the time not opportune. 13. If the Hebrews were subject to the danger of idolatry because of the intercourse and vicinity of heathenism, and because of their blind inclination to attribute divinity to men or to whatever seemed great, powerful, or in any way superior, then if, in the first preaching of the gospel and the faith of Christ our Savior, the great excellences of his most holy mother had been propounded to them, the Gentiles would have been in still greater danger of this error. In corroboration of this, we have the saying of Dionysius, the Areopagite, who, though he was such a great philosopher, that he had found out the existence of the true God, and even by his natural acumen of mind, openly maintained after he had become a Catholic, that when he had seen and conversed with the Most Holy Mary, he would certainly have esteemed and adored her as a god, if faith had not taught him otherwise. And this danger then would have fallen much more easily the ignorant, and they would certainly have confounded the divinity of Christ the Redeemer, which they were obliged to believe together with the greatness of his most pure mother, thinking that, since they were propounded at the same time and showed such similarity in holiness, she was a god, just as her son." But this danger vanished after the faith and practice of the church had taken such deep roots, and after it had been so clearly established by the teachings of the holy doctors and by so many miracles wrought by God in testimony of the Redeemer. Enlightened by these testimonies, we know that he alone is God and true man, full of truth and grace, 
and that his mother is a mere creature, full of grace without possessing the divinity, and next to God, above all the rest of creation. In our times, then, so enlightened by the divine truth, the Lord knows when and how it is proper to spread the glory of his most holy mother by opening up the enigmas and secrets of the holy scriptures, wherein he holds them enshrined. 14. The mystery of which I am about to speak with many others concerning our great queen was recorded by the evangelist in the metaphors of the 21st chapter of the Apocalypse, especially introducing the Most Holy Mary under the type of Holy Jerusalem and describing her under cover of all the circumstances mentioned in that chapter. Although in the first part I have explained it at length in three chapters, applying it as it was given to me to understand to the mystery of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mother, Yet it is necessary now to interpret it in relation to the mystery of the descent of the Queen of Angels, after the ascension of the Lord. Let it not be objected that there is a contradiction or repugnance in these different applications, for both of them are legitimately founded on the literal text of the Scriptures. There can be no doubt that the divine wisdom can comprehend in the same and identical words many mysteries and sacraments. As David said, in one word we can include more than one thing. And God certainly included a double meaning in the same words, without equivocation or contradiction. Psalm 61, 12. This is one of the sources of the difficulties found in Holy Scripture, and one that was necessary in order to make it more pregnant and precious in its meaning, and in order that the faithful may study it with greater humility and reverence. That it should be so full of enigmas and metaphors is necessary, since in the style and wording the sacred mysteries, which would be strained by the more proper terms, can be expressed much more fully. 15. This will be better understood in the mysteries now under consideration for St. John, says that he saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem, prepared and adorned as a bride, descending from heaven. There is no doubt that this metaphor of a city refers truly to the Most Holy Mary, and points out her descent, after having ascended with her Most Blessed Son. At the same time, it also refers to her descent in the divine mind by her Immaculate Conception, in which she was formed as the new earth and the new heaven, as explained in the first part. The evangelist included both these sacraments when he speaks of this event in the 21st chapter. Therefore, it will be necessary to explain it in this new sense, though this will imply a repetition of the sacred text. But I will explain it more briefly on account of what I have already said in the first part. I will now speak in the name of the evangelist for the sake of greater brevity. 16. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth was gone, and the sea is now no more. Apocalypse 21.1 he calls the most sacred humanity of the incarnate word and that of his heavenly mother a new heaven and a new earth, a heaven on account of the inhabitation of the divinity and humanity, and a new one on account of the renovation of mankind. In Christ Jesus our Savior lies the divinity, Colossians 2.9, in a oneness of personality following from the indissoluble substantial union, while in Mary another kind of union is effected, an extraordinary union of graces. These heavens are now new, the passable humanity which the evangelist had seen wounded and dead in the sepulchre. He now saw elevated and placed at the right hand of the Eternal Father, crowned with glory and with the gifts merited by his life and death. He saw also the mother who had given to Christ this passable nature and had cooperated in the redemption of the human race, seated at the right hand of her son, Psalm 44.10, and absorbed in the ocean of her inaccessible light of the divinity, 
participating in the glory of her son as his mother, and meriting it in justice and on account of her ineffable works of charity. He called also the earth of the living, a new heaven and a new earth, as it was renewed by the lamp of the Lamb. Apocalypse 21-23 Replenished with the spoils of his triumph and newly illumined by the presence of his mother, renewed also, because as sovereigns they had taken possession of their reign through all the eternities. They renewed it also, by having afforded the inhabitants the opportunity to see them with their own eyes and to partake of their benefits. By having populated this earth with the new children of Adam as its citizens and their allies, and by having turned it over to them without any danger of loss. On account of these different kinds of renewal, he said that the first heaven and the first earth had gone, not only because the sacred humanity of Christ and that of Most Holy Mary, in which she had lived, as in the first heaven, had betaken themselves to the eternal habitations, bearing with them also the earth of their human essence, but also because men themselves from the ancient heaven and earth of their passable being had passed to the state of impassibility. Gone were the rigors of justice, and the blessed rest was attained. The winter of troubles had fled, and the eternal springtime of joy and delight had come. The first earth and heaven of all the mortals had also vanished, for the celestial Jerusalem had been barred and locked during 5,200 years, so that none could enter, and all the mortals would have been confined to the old sin-stained earth, if, through the entrance of Christ and his most blessed mother, these bars and locks had not been shattered, and the divine justice had not been satisfied. 17. In a special sense, the most blessed Mary was a new heaven and a new earth, and by ascending with her the Savior Jesus, and by taking possession at the right hand in the glory of the body and soul without having passed through the death common to all the sons of men, although even in her human condition upon earth she was a heaven, whence she saw the divinity, but this condition of the great lady passed away to take the place of another condition, making her by an admirable disposition of the divine providence a new heaven in which God might dwell among all creatures in the highest glory." In this new order, in the new heaven, there was no sea, for through her the bitterness and sorrows of labor had come to an end, if she would have consented to remain from that time on in the most happy state. In regard to the other saints who in body and soul, or only in the soul, remained in glory, all storms and dangers of the first earth and mortal life now really had an end. This concludes our reading today for day number 279. We've been reading from volume 4, book 7. Chapter 2, paragraphs 10 to 17. Maria of Agreda, our scripture exegete and scholar, is providing us another commentary of Revelation 21 in our reading today. Remember that she did that for Revelation 12 and 21, and then for Proverbs, for that woman of great worth. And now here we are again, looking at it in a different perspective. As she mentioned previously, she looked at it in terms of the Immaculate Conception. I saw a new Jerusalem. But now, Maria of Agreda is looking at this chapter of Scripture as that of Mary coming back to earth, that she ascended to heaven with her son, remained there, saw it, and now she comes back to earth. And so we're going to continue tomorrow hearing this interpretation of how this could be as Maria of Agreda has received it in these revelations. We also heard in our reading today about the grave. 
about the sepulchre, about the places where people were buried. For example, we heard, in order to moderate our doubts, we need only consider what the various saints and doctors have said about the providential concealment of the body and burial of Moses. This was ordained, they say, in order that the people of the Jews, so given to idolatry, might not be led astray into giving adoration to the body of the prophet, whom they esteem so highly, or that they might not begin to venerate him by some superstitious and vain cult. If we think about today in our contemporary sense, well, now we visit the graves of saints. I visited the grave of Blessed James Miller. I went to Agreda to visit the body of Maria of Agreda. And so there's a sense of now for us as we visit these places, that we are honoring that person, yes, but as we do so, we learn about them and they point us to the Lord. They point us to Almighty God. Maria of Agreda is only important insofar as she has written to us four volumes that tell us about Mary and Jesus and their life. And so when you visit Maria of Agreda, it's to honor her for the work that she has done as it's being communicated to us through these volumes of the mystical city of God. Thousands upon thousands of people every day walk by an empty tomb in Jerusalem. They go to the tomb to witness it for themselves that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. And so when we visit the graves of people, they could be your family member, they could be of holy men and women, it's almost as if we're saying, I come here because this is an anticipation of what is to come, that this grave too will be opened and empty in the resurrection of the body. It's a reminder to us of what is to come. I'm Father Edward Looney, and throughout the year I'm reading and reflecting on the four volumes of the mystical city of God, I'm grateful you joined me today, and I hope you'll join me again tomorrow. Until then, may God bless you, and Mary pray for you.